and welcome to the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorders Society. I'm your host, Sarah Schaefer from the Yale School of Medicine, and today we'll be speaking with Jose Pineda Pardo, who is a PhD in biomedical engineering and staff researcher at the Center for Integrative Neuroscience in Madrid. We'll be speaking today about his paper in the October issue of the Movement Disorders Journal entitled Striatal Blood-Brain Barrier Opening in Parkinson's Disease Dementia, Pilot Exploratory Study. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the introduction, Sarah. The first thing that comes to mind when thinking about the blood-brain barrier, for me at least, is usually that it protects the brain against pathogens and toxins and other insults from outside the brain. However, it is also clearly critical to think about it when we think about how to deliver medications to the brain, which is more the focus of where this study came from. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you are totally right. So actually, the thing is the BBB, the blood-brain barrier, is there for a reason. It's to prevent the entrance of pathogens, toxins, and to selectively permit the entrance of nutrients and other things. But the fact is that most trials for neurodegenerative diseases fail in the search for an effective drug therapy. One of the reasons for that has been attributed to the blood-brain barrier, the low permeability or high selectivity. Alternatives to our procedure to low-intensity focus ultrasound, so to increase the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, might be either too unspecific or too invasive. So this way, we think this is a good way to go and the possibility of toxins or pathogens that might cross the blood-brain barrier. And this is a risk to consider. This is not neglectable. But in case we find a way to deliver a potential effective drug, the benefits might exceed the risk, for sure. And another thing is that, well, the reason why most of the studies that we are seeing are safety trials are because of that, because we need to consider all the possible factors of these type of interventions. A lot of the drugs that we're starting to talk about are being looked at with intrathecal administration in order to try to avoid the blood-brain barrier as the issue. And even, as you said, with the intrathecal administration, there's the concern about how deeply it penetrates into the brain, what parts of the brain are actually being affected by this drug, is it even getting to the striatum, and in what quantities. And of course, there's always the patient not being super excited about getting a lumbar puncture all the time, right? So this does seem pretty critical moving forward. Tell us about the previous studies that have looked at transient opening of the blood-brain barrier in specific brain sites and in specific populations. Well, using this technology, so low-density focus ultrasound, we can distinguish like two lines of clinical research for opening, for inducing a permeability of the blood-brain barrier. And these are like a cancer research line for brain cancer, treating brain cancer and neurodegeneration. I want to distinguish these two because they are following like two different paths and also it's clearly neurodegeneration. So in cancer research, we saw the first papers around 2016 with invasive devices and this followed by another publication in 2019 and so on. And the thing is that in these cases, they are targeting the tumor and the peritumor area, and their objective is quite clear, to increase the permeability of the blood tumor barrier, to deliver chemotherapy, monoclonal antibodies therapy. And they can go really fast because they do not be as conservative as we have to be with neurodegeneration. This is a clearly one path, and they are advancing a lot. In our case, in neurodegeneration, I will say that there were some preclinical experiments in Queensland. They demonstrated that the opening by itself will have an impact in the clearance of beta amyloid. They showed this in mice, and actually they even showed that the mice, they had some improvement in certain tasks, right? So this was definitely a trigger for the trials in neurodegeneration, and this was followed by the first report by Lipsman, Neil Lipsman in Sunnybrook in Toronto. 
they show in this paper, they performed the opening in patients with Alzheimer's disease, and they were able to successfully open the blood-brain barrier and the pressure. And this was safe, it was, this was well tolerated, and this was followed by another works by, in other groups, another work in, in ALS, in cortical regions, and another work in Parkinson's disease dementia. The thing they have in common is that they were targeting cortical areas, well, hippocampus, but in general, superficial cortical areas. So these were small targets. So the aim here was to target small regions to the safety of the procedure and the tolerability. And one of the results that came out of this publication was the replication of the findings by Lenenga. So they showed that the opening by itself alone was able to reduce the amyloid burden. So the thing was found in mice was replicated in humans in Alzheimer's disease patients. So this was a good thing. The findings were well, moderate in magnitude. They were not huge in terms of the amount of amyloid production, but were significant. So this is a kind of a summary of the early trials before this one by ours that has been recently published. Yeah, that was one of the most surprising aspects of the paper for me was learning that just opening the blood-brain barrier with focused ultrasound has been shown to reduce beta amyloid deposition in those areas. I have two related questions. One is, what is the proposed mechanism for that? And has this been explored in other depositions of proteins like alpha-synuclein or tau? So they have been to propose, well, by us and by all of the authors that have explored this, two main mechanisms for possible mechanisms for this. One is the lymphatic system. So opening the blood-brain barrier alone may have an impact on the lymphatic flow just by facilitating the flow of cerebral spinal fluid into the perivascular spaces and into the parenchyma and so on. So this is my supposed boost in the process of clearance amyloid. Actually, we know that beta amyloid accumulates uh, extracellularly, and one of the possible reasons for beta amyloid accumulation might be the dysfunction of this system, right? So if by just the performing opening, or by just increasing the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, where pushing this flow might be facilitating this clearing process. And the other mechanism that has been proposed is the, the inflammatory response of microglial and astrocytic activation that we know that it occurs after VVD opening. So for the restoration of the barrier and so on, also for the clearing of the toxin of pathogens that might have crossed. So the, this, uh, this uh, inflammatory response might have something to do with the clearance. The other thing you ask, so for alpha synuclein and tau, to my knowledge, accumulates only intracellularly. So if these two mechanisms are the ones responsible, or the ones related to the BVD opening, probably they will have little impact on the clearance of these two proteins. So I guess that uh, in this case, we will need to combine the opening with some specific uh, drug therapy or so. So what did your team hope to add to this data with your study? Yeah. So actually, a couple of things. Well, first study, as you know, from the abstract and so on, that the idea for trial was not to confirm this, but to show safety of this. Actually, these are the pillars of this type of trial until now. But to add upon these findings, we expected to contribute to the evidence, which, in my opinion, is still moderate. So the idea was to contribute to the moderate evidence that I consider is still there for the beta-amyloid reduction related to the opening alone. So actually, in addition to the two positive findings we have in Alzheimer's disease, there was a negative finding by one of the earliest reports by Neil Lipsman. I think that our results give some more to contribute to this degree of evidence. But also the idea here is to test this hypothesis of amyloid reduction in a different pathology, which is Parkinson's disease dementia, in which amyloid accumulation might follow a different mechanism or even magnitude and so on. 
And on the other hand, I like also to stress out that this was not the main outcome, the main primary outcome of the study or idea here was to test for feasibility, reversibility, and safety, which are like the, the main pillars of this type of early BV opening trials. Tell me about the protocol of the study. Yeah, this was pretty much the same as the previous one. James was prospective exploratory, open level, single arm, phase one safety, and so on. So it's basically exploring the safety of the procedure in the same cohort of patients that we published in 2019 in Nature Communications. The difference was the target. So that we were targeting here the posterior, the post-commissural putemme, and also the extent of the target. So in the previous report, we performed small openings, so a small volume of area was targeted. In here, we extended to the whole posterior putamen, which was a large opening. And the idea was to test the safety of this procedure. And we did that in a cohort of seven patients that were treated twice, like two weeks apart. So this was, again, the, the same as the previous one. And the primary outcomes were, well, most of them were safety outcomes. So a clinical outcome, the MDS, CPTRS, neuropsychological complete exploring all cognitive domains, MRI to test the possibility of the opening inducing some small hemorrhage or edema. And another thing we added in here, as we were targeting the putemming, which, which I didn't say, but for us, of course, for Parkinson's disease, seems like a very meaningful target if we want to restore dopaminergic denervation with any kind of drug we can imagine. So in here, we decided to add Lopapet for the positron emission tomography, just as a measure of safety, not as a measure of potential benefit or so. Because the idea of opening inducing a potential impact in the dopaminergic circuit is something that needs to be assessed, and this is why we included it. So we also include a secondary measure to evaluate amyloid. And well, so these were all the safety measures. Anything in there was collected as a safety concern. And regarding feasibility and reversibility, we use what's being used in most of the trials, which is gadolinium enhanced MRI. Basically, this is consisting in injecting gadolinium, a paramagnetic contrast. You're probably familiar with all of it. And so basically seeing enhancing in hyperintensity in the parenchyma around the target is a positive confirmation of the successful procedure. And again, the disappear of this enhancement is a positive confirmation of the restoration of the blood-brain barrier. Thanks for that great overview. What were the results with regard to the primary outcomes, which again were safety, feasibility, and reversibility? So feasibility and reversibility were were pretty much confirmed. Basically, we confirmed the capacity to induce opening in the post-commissional containment, and the restoration of the opening was confirmed. In most of the cases, 24 hours after the procedure, and in some cases, this is something that has not been seen before. Actually, we saw that in a few cases, 24 hours after the procedure, there was still some enhancement with dotty appearance, like small spots. And this seemed to be co-located within perivascular spaces. So for some reason, there's still some minimal leakage within the perivascular space. But this, we monitor this in subsequent follow-ups and this disappear. And this about feasibility and reversibility and about safety, basically, we didn't see any major or serious adverse events for the patients. No clinical or neuropsychological relevant change was observed in all the patients. And in the MRI, we did observe a couple of things. There is one thing that has been reported by us and by others, which is what we call ketostahypointensities. It seems that in some cases, maybe related to a higher dose of ultrasound and opening, we might see a small hypointensity in T2-star, which seems to be related from histological studies. A study that was published recently in PNAS seems to be related to extravasation of red blood cells. At the end, we are opening the blood-brain barrier. And as you said at the beginning, many things can come out. And for some reason, the blood cells might come out, and this will affect the 
ketostar images. In any case, this didn't have any clinical correlation, so we didn't have any clinical event associated to it. Um, this seems to be attenuated along follow-ups. So it's something we see in acute evaluation, but seems to be attenuated in longer follow-ups. And in our series, we also saw two patients with, with mild edema. This is something that we follow and it resolved. It was mild vasogenic edema. But this, again, this is something that might be attributed when you're performing larger openings. They disrupted the blood-brain barrier in a larger volume. So for Europa, we didn't observe any change. This was, again, as I said before, a safety measure. But we observed a non-significant but an average increment of follow-up activity. We do not have an explanation for that, but it was intriguing. We saw that this increment was correlated with reduction in amyloid. So there was an intrinsic mechanism that relate these two, but we don't have an explanation for that. But it still was interesting, something that needs further exploration. So we talked about the results of the primary outcomes, but what about the exploratory outcome of the study? What were the results of that? As I said, we acquired Florbet of a bed to evaluate the impact of the opening in the posterior putamen regarding amyloid burden. And in our case, we find an expected finding, but higher in magnitude than we were expecting based on the previous report. We found that the average change was close to 20%, which was higher than in previous studies. And not only this, we also found that there was a direct association, so a significant correlation between the enhancement on the calorie and contrast T1 weighted images, so the enhancement we saw in the target, and the reduction in amyloid. So finding this significant association help us to establish a link between the procedure itself, so between the opening of the blood-brain barrier and the reduction in amyloid that we are seeing in these patients. So interesting that you were able to see that correlation even with such small power in the study that that was still statistically significant that the more gadolinium enhancement there was and therefore the more blood-brain barrier opening there was, the greater the reduction in beta amyloid deposition. Some of the patients in the study had a unilateral target twice, while others had a unilateral target followed by bilateral targets. You do explain this a little bit in the paper, but can you just tell our listeners why there was that difference and did their outcomes differ? So the reason for that is was to increase safety testing gradually. So the plan was to go first with something that might be like one step farther from the previous experiment. So going to another target in two separate sessions. So we test the safety of repeated procedure in the same target. And once we confirmed that, we decided to increase complexity or to increase extent of the targeting. So actually bilateral targeting is with this type of procedure is not something that requires a super methodology change. So actually it's pretty much the same procedure. It just increased a little bit in time, maybe higher dosage, micro bubbles. But this is why we did it in separate blocks, first three patients and second three patients to the other arm. So going off of that, the patients in this study underwent the procedure twice, either unilateral followed by unilateral or unilateral yeah. followed by bilateral, and yeah. were followed up for six months. Do you have any yeah. concern that the reversibility or safety might be less favorable with longer follow-up? It sounds like potentially not, since you followed any patients who still had gadolinium enhancement or edema to determine that there was resolution? Or do you have any concern with an idea of multiple focused ultrasounds procedures as presumably in order to administer treatments to a patient, it's unlikely to be a one and done type of situation? A one and done will be ideal, actually. Well, based on our findings, I do not foresee like 
there might be expectancy for issues related to reversibility or safety, longer follow-ups. So we decided to finish our follow-up at six months, but the patients were completely fine. And also the other reports, they do not see a reason to expect a change in that. I do think that's important what you also commented about repeatability. So imagine this procedure, it has to be repeated like once a week during one year for a specific treatment. I see this a real challenge. This is something that in neurodegenerative disorders has not been tested. The maximum number of treatments that have been performed for the same target is three, well, two to three. One paper was three and most of the rest were, were only two sessions. So extending that into 10 sessions or 20 might compromise vasculature. I don't know how, but this is something that for sure will need to be tested. But I will say that everything is a matter of trade-offs. So if we have a potential drug for which we expect a certain clinical benefit, we might consider evaluating a trade-off between one risk and the other and considering maybe one exposure to life will be the opening once a month or one every two months. I don't know. But for sure, the goal here, as I see it, and as some other colleges and researchers in this area see it, I guess the goal here for neurodegeneration is to go for a one and done thing. You have high aspirations. Yeah, of course, of course. But this is what I would like, and this is what we are exploring, and not only us, but others. I guess that the developments in gene therapy will be the ideal thing to aim towards. I think this could be a goldmine. So the idea of having a, a single limited impact into the blood-brain barrier and an effective, long-lasting effect, this is what we aim for, but uh, we will see. The gold at the end of the rainbow. So moving on to limitations of the study, clearly power was a limitation. It was less than 10 subjects. What other limitations did you identify and what might the next steps be? And related, and you kind of got into this a little bit, but how do you envisage this technique being incorporated in the future? Lack of power is one thing, or M-size, sample size was seven patients. But I, I want, before going to other limitations, I want to say that in here one must consider that we are not giving any therapeutical expectatives to patients, right? So it's very difficult to recruit patients for this type of trials. And compared to other reports, seven patients was limited but adequate in terms of testing safety. But major limitation in this study was, and I guess also for many other studies, and we say it in the paper, it was the COVID lockdown. It was just in the middle of the study, and it was something that masked potential result that we could have seen in cognitive impact of the procedure. I, I don't say we will expect, of course, a cognitive improvement. I, I cannot say that. I do not know. But this is something that definitely COVID lockdown has masked. And there are other limitations. There are most of them technical, and we will see in the coming months a lot of improvement in this area. We're already seeing it in terms of controllability. Right now, we are performing openings of the blood barrier in a large target. But we do not control how homogeneous are this opening or what type of drugs in terms of molecular weights or solubility are going to be able to cross. And in this regard, there are many things like the flow, or the influx of drugs that will go through the BV, etc. So in our group, our next step will be to continue testing safety for other indications, targets or pathology or so on. But definitely the objective here for us and for others is to include pharma development. So we need to envisage potential drugs that might benefit of this type of procedure. And definitely this is key in order to go for the success of the technique. And what the second thing you asked was? If you had a crystal ball, what would you see in your crystal ball? So it's a very simple thing. It's an ambulatory procedure that can be performed fast without need of, right now we are using a head frame as fixated in the patient without a frame, a fully controllable system that you just program. I want to deliver this concentration of drug into this area in the brain. The system will estimate how much energy, how much microbubbles, everything. 
in order to deliver this significant amount of drug into the brain. And something, of course, that can be repeated several times without compromising the vasculature. But what I really do see, and I do not need a crystal ball, and we will probably see it soon, I think, for the studies that I've been seeing around, is the entrance of this technique into the brain cancer treatment with, in combination with chemotherapy. I think this is the more direct future incorporation into clinics. But of course, I mean, our aim is to go for gene therapy and we're working. Thanks for this enlightening conversation. I learned a lot even above and beyond reading the paper itself. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for the invitation. And if you let me, I would also I would like to thank my team. This is a team workforce, so it's not a single person. I would like to thank them all. If you enjoyed the conversation about this paper, you can further your experience with continuing medical credits, or CMEs. You can find the link to the journal CME course for this paper within the episode description on the MDS website. Journal CME is planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME. The International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society is accredited by the ACCME to provide a continuing medical education for physicians. The International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society designates this education activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credits. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders, and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website. <laughs>